America, my name is Armio Frimpong. I come to you live usually every Thursday, but I want to start doing more candidate interviews because I find candidates fascinating and I got a hot one for you today. <laughs> um, a young woman from out of, of Ohio who wants to be your U.S. Senator from the great state of Ohio. I'm going to bring her on right now. Her name is uh, candidate Morgan Harper. She's a Democrat running from Ohio and she wants to be your U.S. Senator. Now I'm going to give you a little scenario, right? So candidate Harper has done everything a good candidate should. She has fulfilled, she has signed up her paperwork. She has written her checks to the to the Secretary of State. She has gotten signatures if you need to get signatures in Ohio. She's she's done her due diligence. And then I'm sure she wrote a, a kindly worded email to the her challenger or her her other candidate, the contestants, saying like she would like to arrange a debate because the people need a debate because that's the only way the people are going to be able to meaningfully vote, decide which candidate they want. And I'm sure that um, the current senator, a guy by the name of uh, Hunt, right? So Ryan. open Ryan. seat. So he's a candidate, but the oh. incumbent's retiring. Oh, the incumbent's retiring. So, um, so I'm sure all of, it's an open seat. I'm sure all of the candidates were very eager and excited to sit down and hash out good debate dates so that like the people can actually get the robust discourse that uh we deserve because no one would duck debates especially within the democratic party that'd be unseemly and i'm sure that's exactly how it went down right so oh, yeah did I, is that is that how it went down that's, a, me, that's a great great synopsis of not exactly what happened yeah uh no you would believe that the party of democracy with democracy in our name would be all about trying to engage as many people as possible but unfortunately my main opponent in the democratic primary tim ryan has not taken me up on that um and you know it's it's unfortunate because i have to say i'm going to shout out some local media i i know that a lot of us critique the coverage of politics and in, in our local media but um, but I, we had two local TV stations throughout the state of Ohio that wanted to host primary Democratic primary debates, and those those invitations were not accepted. So too bad on that front. Um, it does look like we're going to have one at the end of the month. So I, I want to give a, a shout out to the Ohio Debate Commission that's hosting one. And um, and that's great because, yeah, voters need to have some criteria with which they make decisions about who they select to represent them. And I think that it should be the obligation of every candidate to put themselves out there and make their case for why they should be in office. Right. So you would actually push for a party policy. I, I say this because I would push for a party policy, uh, a party policy that every uh, every candidate vying for elected office should submit themselves to at least three debates. That's just part of what it is to run I for office. Yeah. And, and that was my first request. It was both to my primary opponent, but then also to the Ohio Democratic Party. This should be the role of the party. Party has the resources, party has the network across the state, host forums. And, and it is, you know, even if you don't agree with me philosophically, okay, but I think you should, it's it's self-serving if you if you truly your goal is to have a democratic win, especially in the state of Ohio, where we haven't been winning lately. Uh, that we need to be aggressively out there with our message and making sure that people know who we're running and, and why they should be voting for us. Now, now the party's response I'll say was, oh, we leave that to local media. It was like, oh, well, interesting. Cause then we had local media that wanted to do it, but then my opponent wouldn't accept. So there we are. Well, I'm sure your party put the smack down on your opponent, right? It said like, I, we demand that, um, that, that, that you accept the local media's um, plea. But apparently your party might not, might not be an equal broker with respect to this race. Yeah, they have, uh, they've weighed in 
uh, to endorse, which I, I also, again, you know, whether or not you, you like me, you support me, just thinking big picture here about trying to fend off folks on the Republican side of this race that are truly, you know, the authoritarian corporate interests, all of it. We need to get out there and make our case for why somebody else should be winning because Trump won our state again, right? It's like, yeah, Joe Biden became president, but not because of Ohio. And, and we haven't found a counterpunch to that. And I think that I'm presenting one, but we should have as many people out there in a competitive primary. No endorsement was what I asked for. I think that makes us stronger. But again, you know, not everybody agrees with me, or at least not who is publicly willing to agree with me. <laughs> More people no, behind I, the scenes will. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's not the same. Well, like I need, so the local media is in a bind because they don't want to, they don't want to grant access to someone who might lose and then they'll get punished by the person who wins. So it really should come from the party. Well, the local media has to do its job and request these debates, but it really should come from the party access, or the party apparatus, which should be excited to actually get energy by putting the campaign, the, the candidates kind of at each other yeah. and like clarify for the voters. And right? like I said, in local media, local media did their job. I mean, you know, we've had we've had local media covering our race throughout. Uh, we had local media that stepped up, wanted to host debates, but local media can't force candidates to participate uh, in what they're doing. And, and, and so that is that is too bad. But, you know, we, we keep trucking. I mean, we're we're out there talking to voters all the time, which is in Cleveland yesterday um, back in Columbus today and and we're we're out here because the people the people get it people are over status quo are looking for change and and that's the vision that I'm offering all right so talk to me about jobs right mm -hmm. so we need to actually build an industrial we need to start making things in the United States again and mm -hmm. uh, what's what's the plan what's the plan to get Ohio back working again, and not at fifteen dollars an hour. I want Ohio to be working at twenty-five and thirty dollars an hour. What's yeah, well, I love that. I love that you mentioned that because you know it's it's so interesting uh, where you know a lot of these a lot of the fights that we've had around better wages and all of that. Some people like to paint these as oh, you know, pie in the sky. People can't just make twenty dollars an hour, you know, for some entry level positions. But then I saw there's an announcement, for example, yesterday in a big company that's based in Ohio, Nationwide Insurance that they're going to start paying people $21 an hour entry level jobs, right? And so, you know, before any legislation is even passed, that that movement's happening. And that doesn't just happen. That happens because there's been a complete change in the public narrative around how much we're paying people in this country to do work and what you need to be earning to be able to support yourself, right? And that mismatch. So um, so I think that's, you know, proof point of, of just being on the right side of things and pushing for a higher minimum wage. But, you know, in terms of long term, you know, one of the things that I support is stronger antitrust enforcement, better competition policy. We need to check the concentrations of corporate power in this country that have accelerated over the past 40 years that have put workers in a weaker position. Um, ideally, you don't just have to wait for corporate largesse to, you know, give you a, a higher wage. You actually are in a strong position to negotiate for the labor that you're providing. And that's only going to happen if we start to diminish a bit the power of a lot of these giants in every market sector. And so, uh, you know, that's that's why I, I support that. And, and I, I think that's essential to get us to a better place long term and have more of our manufacturing sector in places like Ohio building. We're never going to be exactly what we were. But we can be a lot better than what we've become. Right. Well, this is also this is a political um, issue insofar as in this modern economy, you create your competitive advantage. You have to decide that we are going to be a solar producing state. 
we're going to be a card producing state. Like that's an intentional decision at the political level that, you know, the state makes, but with the backing of the federal government that you just have to decide what you're going to do, what your advantage is going to do, what is going to be, and then invest at a loss at the beginning in order to make it happen. Yeah, and that's where you know I push for creating those types of incentives investments in sectors of the future, clean energy sector. I mean, we we should not just be talking about the climate crisis as a challenge, which is one that I, I'm the first to talk about, and we need to make sure people realize that, but also as a huge opportunity on the positive side of things to create better paying jobs, to create jobs that are going to be more stable so that we don't always have workers in a weak position. But then, you know, to also think about, all right, what what does put workers in that stronger position longer term? Universal health care, Medicare for all. That's another one of the reasons why I back that policy, because right now we have workers that aren't all only negotiating for higher wages, but also health care benefits. Well, it's great to get those benefits. But then when you get in a situation where you're still at the the uh, you know vulnerable to changes in policies that big insurance might impose on you, like some union workers that I met, for example, in the Toledo area that had their deductible increased by three times uh, overnight, more or less, that you those benefits aren't actually meeting your needs. And so wouldn't it be better to just make sure that everyone has healthcare coverage regardless of their employment situation and that you're able to negotiate for higher wages, money directly in your pocket? Right. So a big policy. I don't think you can be free in the United States without a certain sort of economic security. So we need something, the equivalent of a federal job guarantee. Now, there have been um, FDR proposed one and then Sadie Alexander and Barrett Rustin and MLK. That just means that if you're willing to work, we'll find you a job. It doesn't have to be at $40 an hour. I think it should be at 25, 20 mm. to 25, a federal job guarantee. You're willing to work. We find you a job. Mm -hmm. Like there's enough work to be done. I don't know how it is in Ohio, but mm -hmm. at least in Georgia where I am, people overestimate the civic infrastructure that needs to be done. For example, there's like 60 years worth of deferred maintenance <laughs> to be done. In, in this, oh in, yeah, I just got an email about that this morning. Yeah, like it's this, yeah, there's plenty of work to be done. <laughs> yeah, they're like people, like houses falling apart and like mm -hmm. around old people who can't even clean their gutters anymore. So like there's just work to be done, pipes being ripped out, so in terms of work, we can find the work that needs to be done. And I like paying people to work. So I mm -hmm. want the work done and I want to pay people to work. And it turns out that when this was when this program was floated in India, it increased private sector employment. Because mm -hmm. what happened is once you got the infrastructure fixed, um, it was easier for people to start businesses and you had mm -hmm. more people generally trained. So mm -hmm. a federal job guarantee actually increased private sector employment mm -hmm. in India. And mm -hmm. And in a democracy, I just don't think that you can be both free in an advanced democracy. I don't think you can be both free and jobless. Right. No. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, yeah. And of course, you know, there's some people that just aren't in a position to work, you know, 48 hours a week, whether it's due to some kind of disability or what have you. But yeah, I mean, most people want to be working. Most people Productive. can. Yeah, there, there's plenty of work to be done, like you said. But I, I like that you know you mentioned small businesses too because we not everyone wants to be a worker right I mean sometimes and I and I do think we need to be also looking at what it's going to take to make it easier to be an entrepreneur to make it easier for once you start a business that you can compete you know getting back to the competition policy thing so uh, yeah there are different pathways there but it all is getting towards this goal of 
economic freedom. If you don't have economic stability, you cannot be free really in the United States of America. And it's just become too difficult for too many people to reach that. And that's where we do need to have you know, a, a rethinking of, of what the next 40 years is gonna look like. All right, so there's actually an analog between your situation um, within the Democratic Party and just like a young plucky entrepreneur who's trying to write an RFP <laughs> to get a contract as opposed to like Halliburton, right? So yeah. like we're both going for the same contract, right? In yeah. theory, in theory, we could both do the job and we're both like sitting at our, you know, writing our RFP, but one person has a structural advantage with respect to both contacts and just resources. So how do you break up the contracting? What do you have to do to break up contracting so that it's not just generation null and legacy businesses that eat up all of the federal and state contracts? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and that's where, you know, even, even though someone might not think of this necessarily as directly connecting what a U.S. senator would focus on, you know, U.S. senators have constituent services and prioritizing the use of those constituent services to free information <laughs> to make sure that people, you know, entrepreneurs, especially I hear from a lot of um, black entrepreneurs that are in our state that don't necessarily feel like they get access to those contracts. No, and so, in. yeah, um, that with that we are creating equal access to information and everybody's in, you know, level playing field to, to compete for that contract and let meritocracy take over. Right. But just having people who are hoarding information and prioritizing existing relationships, you know, that's not, that's not fair. So um, I, you can have an office that's going to be breaking through some of that and guiding people along the way about how to be in a good position to compete for these types of contracts. I actually thought you were going somewhere else when you when you were starting out because I do think that there are a lot of similarities in trying to be, you know, more of a grassroots political candidate and an entrepreneur. Uh, it's it's a hustle, and so you know we we need to be looking out for each other, and that's where I do think I've been able to connect with a lot of entrepreneurs who support my style of politics because. They know the hustle too in trying to you know compete against existing structures and and make make inroads for more people to to be able to get a piece of the pie. That's what that's what we're after from our party perspective too. I would say is you know a little less hoarding of power, influence. You know you have to be inside the club a little bit more. Focus on a broader set of folks doing well, flourishing, and and guiding the ship. So I want to switch gears. I'm going to come back to this, but I'm just thinking we're in a very peculiar political moment right now insofar as the nation has imposed sanctions upon Russia, which everyone has agreed will, you know, prices <laughs> prices went up the moment Biden announced. Um, uh, so we're willing to pay everyone, and this is a socialized cost insofar as anyone like who you know, uses energy is going to end up pay for the, paying for these sanctions. So we're willing to pay and support sanctions against a nuclear power for the sake of sovereignty for the Ukraine. But yet when we come to when it comes to policies for Americans, there seems to be like the idea that we don't have the money to pay for it. But yet we're all going to pay for these sanctions. But we don't have the money for the quality of infrastructure programs that we need. And so the question is, is it the is it an issue of money or priorities or is it the people who have have and they don't really care about anybody else who, who doesn't? Because, like I said before, about seven miles outside of this house right here, unless I'm going to Atlanta, people don't even have Internet, <laughs> like not the way that like, you know, right. they think. so. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, I, I do I do think a lot of us have been brainwashed in into this mindset that, you know, scarcity mindset that, oh, we can't we can't do better than where we're currently at, or to do so would somehow be irresponsible, 
uh, or not really, you know, putting enough, um, putting, putting enough like responsibility in the individual, whatever you want to call it. But especially after COVID and the last couple of years that we've lived through, I think a lot more people are realizing that we're just making this all up as we go along, right? <laughs> and once the federal government decides that it's going to prioritize something, it can start to move. It can start to move you know, pretty quickly. And we need to start prioritizing the working people across this country, uh, people who are sick of just barely getting by, if that, and who do want a little bit more security. And so that's not you know, to say that we don't have you know, any priorities from an international perspective. At this point, we have global national security. We have a globally integrated economy. Those things matter. But we need to start making sure that we are prioritizing people who, to your point, live just down the street from us, who can't get housing. People who live just a couple miles away who, yeah, their kids are staying home from school and they don't have access to regular internet. Or if they do, it's going to cost up to almost $200 a month. And who can afford that, right? Because we've allowed monopolies to take over our lives and concentrate all this power among very, very few large multinationals and, and individuals. So, uh, yeah. And hey, let's talk about where some of this money could come from. It can come from not doing a lot of these wars that aren't really serving us, that are resulting in the loss of lives of young people from our country that are sometimes rooted false information. Let's let's talk about leveling the playing field in our our tax code and making sure that corporations are paying their share fair, that their fair share, I should say, that the ultra wealthy as well. Uh, the resources are there. We need to make sure that we have leadership that is going to be honest about what's been going on and really, really driven to correct course. So, you know, with this pandemic, it's really kind of tighten the screws on the fact that if you're black and you grew up in a rented apartment, you're not buying a house now. Like we are a downwardly mobile people. This is according to the Brookings Institute prior to the pandemic. Hasn't gotten any better afterwards because I know in the house I'm in right now, it's gone up, but like people's wages haven't. So if you don't have a house now and you're black, like your grandkids are going to be renting because you'll never get that down payment together uh, to make it viable. What's the solution? What's the path for Black America? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. In some ways, that's the, the one of the things that got me involved in policy in the first place was just starting to notice how these lines are drawn. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Columbus, Ohio, but it's an, it's one of the most economically segregated places in the country. And, and these lines are not just random. A lot of times they do track pretty closely, as we know with race and yeah, seeing like federal design. Yeah. And, 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 you know, at a young age, I was like, wait a second. It's like, these houses look, you know, exactly the same or, you know, whatever apartment, whatever. but it's going to be a different, a different price, a different value, just because it's on that side of the street versus this one. What is that? Right. Well, yeah, that's policy. That's policy. And, and so there have been harms that have been committed in that way that need to be addressed. Um, but we need to make sure that we are doing something to create pathways to for wealth building. And I agree. I mean, especially when you look at how the housing markets are in certain cities right now, that is not a pathway that is available for a lot of people. You need to have a chunk of change to be able to enter there. And then how are you going to get a chunk of change? Well, not but if you're making, grandfather if you're white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not if you're you're getting 60 cent an hour, you know, increases at your job at Kroger, right? That's not how that's going to happen. And so. Uh, we need to decide on, you know, how are we going to do something about that? I think we need to be making sure that we are 
redressing past harms and ensuring that, you know, in the families where we do have assets that have been able to be held on to despite some of this uh, discriminatory policy that those, those stay in the families, those are able to be passed on and have some wealth building, that we do need to look at creating um, access to capital for our small businesses to be able to create more pathways to ownership there um, and be able to, to build wealth. And then, you know, I, I'm not I'm not anti-rental and, and that can be a stepping stone to be able to get to own a home. I mean, that was, that was you know, a stepping stone for me for sure. But right now we see, and even in rentals, people are seeing rents increase like three times you know, uh, month to month, and that's not going to allow you to put much away from savings. So I, I do think that we need to look at how are we going to start controlling the cost in the rental market so that rent, rental can be a pathway to homeownership because right now it is not. No, it's just sucking up all the money you could be saving for a mortgage, right? So, so let's talk about like targeted reparations because the federal government policy made black people poor, right? So the federal government policy made black people poor and we can't emancipate ourselves from the social situation of our, our grandparents because I watch my white colleagues' grandparents die and leave them a lot of money. So like nobody's really emancipated from the social situation of the grandparents in a way that we like to pretend we are in America because that's not how down payments work. Mm -hmm. And so when you're just surrounded by so much poverty at the community level, the only way to make that situation whole is by going to the organ that caused it, which is the federal government. Mm -hmm. So where's your stance on reparations? Yeah, so I do support you know, systemic reparations is, is what I usually refer to it as because I want people to think you know, big in what that means. And I always start with the history. A lot of people, we don't teach <laughs> comprehensive history in our country. And so a lot of people don't even know what you just said. That is not a common knowledge. I think it has become increasingly more so over the last couple of years as there have been books written about it, but you know, federal, how federal housing policy has been discriminatory. Average person, especially when I started in politics a couple of years ago, did not know that. And so I found just like, hey, here's what occurred. We know that home ownership is one of the primary methods of, of wealth building in our country for the middle class or had been until we get to you know, some of our current situation. And that was not made available to black people in the same way. So we need to do something about that. That's not that's not right. That's not fair. And I've found that even among you know a lot of very diverse sets of communities, you can start to build support which is what we will need to do to be able to you know, have any hope of passing federal legislation to do something about it. And so um, that's got to, you know, that's got to start. And I, I found really effective in community based conversations about that to be able to build awareness and then eventually support for doing something. And then what and then what does it look like what we do about that? You know, like I mentioned, does it look like waiving property taxes? Does it look like making sure that we're helping people with a down payment to be able to purchase homes? Does it look like, you know, creating capital for small businesses? Uh, there's a lot of ideas out there, but let's get everybody schooled on the facts and then build that support for implementing the ideas. I, I agree. I agree. I, I've, I'd like to see some of the breaking up some of these contracts and making it so that smaller businesses can actually compete as it stands. Because um, there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of money out there. We have businesses that are out there. I was you know, just talking about this. With someone. It's funny, the timing. I was just talking about this with somebody this morning about making sure that we have fair access to contracts. I mean, we just had this huge development that was announced here in Central Ohio. Intel is going to be investing Central Ohio, you know, $20 billion investment in producing semiconductor chips, talking about, you know, bringing manufacturing back to 
the states and all of that, cool, that's great, big opportunity. But who's gonna be able to build wealth out of that opportunity? Who's gonna be hired? Are we gonna have you know, diverse contractors? Are we gonna have black contractors that are involved in that? Um, are we gonna make sure that the housing market isn't even further you know, distorted and out of reach with home prices and rental you know, availability, all of that? How are we thinking about this holistically? to make sure that we do have, for example, you know, black entrepreneurs who are be being able to build wealth out of this great investment opportunity. And black workers. So why, we have all these great lefty progressive ideas, but yet somehow, cause we're rational enough to figure out the problem, but yet somehow all of these ideas and all of these candidates get aborted by our process. Where does this happen? Where, where do good candidates and good policies, how do they get, how do they get killed? And how come that's not more explicit? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have the one answer to that, but you know, there are a lot of barriers to getting out there as someone who is a little bit more independently minded. You know, when you're a Democrat and you're running in a grassroots way, there are a lot of um, yeah. I mean, just like one, making sure that people hear about you, hear about the ideas. The ideas are popular, but if folks never hear about them, or take for example something like Medicare for all, if all they hear from both Republicans and some Democrats is that, oh my gosh, this is going to result in lines like Canada and that gets in there. Well, then they don't ever think positively about it or that's their only frame of reference. It takes having someone that kind of breaks it down a little bit like, well, you know, you know what you never hear about in Canada is like anybody dropping dead because they can't afford insulin. Right. Like I never hear about that. Isn't that interesting? And they're like, yeah. And then that becomes the dominant thought, not these fake lines and quotas and all of this. So uh, so, you know, I, I think some of it is just awareness. The media doesn't always do a great job of helping to train people about how to think about policy. And so we got to get out there and do it directly. And that takes, that takes money, that takes time, that takes boots on the ground. And, and we need, I mean, you know, that's what you can, that's what you can do somewhat through a campaign, but you got to be able to raise the resources. And, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, we're on a, I think we're on a, I want to say long-term journey, but it needs to be accelerated based on the stakes right now. But we're in a time where things are changing very quickly and, and that could change in a, in a better direction. But that's why, you know, always encouraging a lot of people to run, uh, support will come. I mean, I took a real leap of faith, I would say a couple of years ago when I first ran for office, definitely in the Senate race too. And people show up, people help and, and spread that message, but it does take a lot of dedication and, and privilege really to be able to, you know, devote yourself to a campaign over a long period of time. Yeah, that's one thing people don't really talk about as much as you can. In order to run, it's it's a full-time job, pretty much, yeah. to be out there, especially statewide. I mean, statewide in a state that big, it's a full-time job. You're always going someplace. So that's why so many of the candidates are either independently wealthy or are independent contractors, like lawyers who can just close up a shingle or whatever, so, yeah. or you know, doctors who can close their practice. So what's it going to take to actually democratize the ability to vie for candidacy? Yeah, I, mean, I think some of that's happening by, you know, opening up grassroots funding. I mean, unfortunately, we've had a lot of, you know, more corporate funded <laughs> politicians that have co-opted some of the email and grassroots fundraising mechanisms that have been effective and now are just exhausting the whole public about, you know, all the emails that they get. That's too bad. People that don't need to rely on that necessarily because they have access to all the big donors um, are taking advantage of that. So, you know, that that's too bad. But I look, I mean, I'm not sugarcoating it. I think we're in need of mass movement type of mobilization to really get at breakthroughs. And, and campaigns can be a mechanism for doing that, but it cannot be just during 
electoral cycles. It needs to be in between cycles. It needs to be building off of the work of grassroots organizations that clue people in based on whatever their issue is. I mean, for example, like some of the communities I'm thinking about in Ohio that are very well organized out of necessity are things like the harm reduction grassroots community. I mean, people who are out there distributing Narcan, fentanyl, test strips. I mean, these things that are saving lives and, and nobody wants to talk about, but people are doing that work. So, you know, that's, a, that's an effective organization. Uh, now more groups sprouting up around housing and talking about that, educating people out there. That's necessary, but no, I mean, I, we, need, we need a lot of people to realize like, we don't have to live like this, but the only way it's gonna change is by a lot more of us. You know, that's a whole organized thing is engaging the political process, changing it, not waiting, no more deference. So you need a network of social groups that are not necessarily political, but are social and progressively minded in order to support your candidacy. Has Have any social groups like a DSA or uh, uh, any kind of group like that, any left progressive yeah. group like helped you out and just given you either money or like volunteers knocking doors that have yeah. been helpful? We, we've had, uh, you know, like Sunrise Columbus, for example, has endorsed our race. Uh, there's some national organizations that have also endorsed, you know, progressive change campaign committee, PCCC, for folks who have heard of that. Collective PAC has endorsed our race, you know, so that can be helpful in just continuing to build. Because really, I mean, especially when you're running for Senate, you got to build national name ID. You have to build name ID in state to be able to generate the resources. So, um, so in this infrastructure is growing, you know, it's more sophisticated than it was a couple of years ago to support more independently funded candidates and hopefully you know we can just continue to grow that but um but yeah it's it's movement style politics and that's my argument here in ohio is it's going to take a movement style campaign candidate to have any shot of mobilizing the turnout we need because people are so suspicious of everything that's come before one of the most common questions i get from a lot of different types of audiences is you know why can we trust you why are you different and being able to have a candidate that has an authentic answer to that is really, really important. And, and then more, even more importantly is having people that folks trust in their community because they're doing things around harm reduction, housing, et cetera, that are, that are saying, hey, this is the candidate we should be supporting too. Right, okay. So what's going to, what do you need in order to have a fair fight in this election, in this primary? Uh, I need people around the country to help me raise a million dollars. If you want to be honest, a million more dollars. I mean, we've raised over a million dollars, but you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but a lot of this, look, in a perfect world, we have, like we were talking about earlier, we have a party that has the resources, that prioritizes just presenting the candidates that have different visions for where we're headed to the voters and then let the voters decide. And they put out mailers that feature each candidate and voters do their research and then they pick. What we actually have is a party picking favorites in advance based on who they think is gonna be the safer choice and misleading the public in a lot of ways about what their choices are. And people are busy out here because they have jobs and families and all this and don't have time to do the research. So that's too bad. Um, but to overcome that, that's where things like ads become so important. It is not an accident that the Republicans who are running in this race in their primary have spent already over $30 million in TV ads. And we haven't even hit the primary yet, right? Our primary is May 3rd. So we, especially at me as a more, you know, a grassroots, non-corporate funded Democratic candidate, 
we need, we need people to step up and help us get some of those ads too, because the ads are really effective. Why are the ads so effective? Well, because we have gutted resources from a lot of our media that no longer can cover politics in the same way. Why? Because we have allowed big tech to totally destroy a lot of our local media landscape. And we have all these different sources of information that people are getting. We don't really have a commons that is just providing uh, less biased, you know, more direct coverage of what's going on when it comes to politics. And so these paid ads are important. And who do paid, paid ads tend to benefit? People who already have resources. So we counteract that by real people stepping up like they've already done to contribute to our campaign and then help us get some of those too. And any anybody that's able to support, especially from here on out, we have 55 days to go. That's what you know it's likely going to go towards and to get our message out. And our message is one of economic freedom. It's one of making sure that we have policies that are going to put us all in a better position, like Medicare for all, like increasing the minimum wage. And that all starts with leadership that knows what's going on on the ground that has had to work to be able to understand how the system works and is going to be unbought and fighting for implementing all of that and making it happen for us. Yeah, I just keep going back to you don't get the good policies you want with the processes intact as they are. So like, I want to see you and Ryan on stage together. <laughs> well, we are going to have questions. one confirmed. So right. yeah, I want, end of the month. It and but, and if you call up, you know, the local NPR station or the, it's a statewide. So the few NPR stations there are and say, like, I need 30 minutes to to, to talk about a suite of issues. Do you get that time? No, I mean, we we, we reach out to the press all the time about, yeah. you know, what's going on with the campaign and they'll cover different you know campaign stops we have. But uh, usually media feels pretty pressured if you're featuring one candidate to then feature all candidates. Right. And so, yeah, unlikely that they would just give me 30 minutes to myself. To, <laughs> just, to just talk and to take, talk. take a record. But that would be yeah. great. But that would be great. I mean, it'd be good for democracy. It'd be good for the good people of Ohio who might want to actually make an informed decision, have their vote mean something. Because, like, elections happen all the time, right? I remember back in 2002 where Saddam Hussein was elected by almost 100% in Iraq. Right. So like elections happen all the time. So just because you have a vote doesn't mean it's meaningful if you're not actually if you don't have access to information about the candidates. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's where I got a little bit of, of flack on the in the Twitter sphere from some people when we did these debates with Josh Mandel, who's one of the, the Republican front runners. And it's like, oh, you're platforming him. This like I'm not platforming anybody. I mean, the conservative huh. movement platform, this guy, the Ohio GOP, <laughs> um, Democrats used to support him when he first started his career. Okay. Right. You know, some of the more prominent Democrats. So uh, no, I, I'm trying to stop this guy and we need to get our message out there right. and of how we do that. And so, you know, we did two, we did two sessions that we organized on our own grassroots style, got some podcasters, people who are in the community doing more grassroots media as well to host and then just went to the community with that. And and I heard from a lot of people, even people that follow politics, that this was, you know, the first time they realized the threat. Some people, this was the first time they knew the Senate race was even happening or that there was a Democrat running because the Republicans are taking up all of the oxygen with all of their money and the ads. And and that's important. And so yeah, I mean people want people want to know what's going on. And this whole idea that, oh, you know, it's like folks are just out here uneducated and don't really, no, 
We know what's going on. And, and I feel an obligation as a leader and anybody else who's trying to present themselves as one as continuing to give people information, understand their choices so that we can all make better ones and start to change things. But we cannot rely on the traditional power structures to do that for us, as I'm sure you and, and most people who watch you know. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that in order to run a campaign, it's, a, it's kind of a medium sized business, which means you have different people, each with their technical expertise that you need to hire on because you can't do everything like you actually yeah. can't do everything. Yeah. You need yeah. specialists. So you need campaign operatives. But campaign operatives, if they work for you, might end up on a list. And if they end up on that list, the Democratic Party will treat them poorly. So have yeah. you run into people who like, oh, I, I can support you in private, but I can't come out and say that I support Morgan Harper because I don't want to be on the bad side of X and X Democrat. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that, <laughs> especially a couple of years ago, but unfortunately in state that continues big time because you know, where people are able to leverage a lot of that power and bullying, because let's call it what it is. I mean, that is mm -hmm. like, bullying and retaliation and it's gross from anybody who claims to be about democracy uh, but yeah no they can leverage that on the local level where they're going to say yeah you're not going to get that job or oh your husband's applying for this thing but this person was associated with morgan harper and we don't want them to get that and and that can really impact people's livelihood so you know that's kind of scary i mean i think the the dc consultant class is maybe a little bit more insulated that insulated from that because they can work with people all over the country but it's really, it's really sad to see folks try to do that to each other, you know, in, in smaller markets where people don't have anywhere else to go and they right. know that they can really get to you. Um, but that's why we have to win. <laughs> I mean, we got to break this up. We have to, I, and my whole story is one of recognizing abuses of power and standing up to it. And I do not like that. I believe that is also one of the reasons why I'm in politics is because I have been privileged to be able to, like I said, understand how this system works understand how power works and now try to use that knowledge to leverage it for our greater freedom because that's what america is supposed to be and this kind of like pettiness and punishing people that is not that is not what politics is supposed to be but we gotta we the people need to be able to have more power and influence in order to to change that uh, so what kind of media infrastructure do you need to actually have competitive elections well, you know, all along we've had uh, a comms person who's been involved in our campaign to help us, you know, make sure that we're getting into the local media. We've gotten we've gotten really good earned media okay. coverage throughout our campaign. I would say, especially in state, um, you know, the. But when we look at <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. You know, getting back to one of our topics before, though, where where are most people though, especially when we look at Democratic primary voters, getting their information from? It's, it's not always their local news, though in Ohio, a good number of people do watch local news. A lot more often, it'll be like the MSNBCs of the world. And so who can get on you know, the large cable news and, and get access to that platform more regularly? It's probably gonna be people that you know, already have those relationships. So this is where we just get into like corporate co consolidation also in the media um, and what kind of messages and who gets platformed in that way. Um, is relevant for a campaign. But anyway, so, you know, we've had a comms person who's helped us with just getting our narrative out in state press. Uh, we do have someone now too on our campaign that, you know, is on the ground that's that's working to, when we have press conferences, media come, like I said, I was in Cleveland yesterday and we had our the local TV stations that were out covering the women's march that I participated in. And then from there, 
well, that's about the media structure that we have. So as a, as a more aggressive campaign, that's, that's what we've got. And then, you know, and, and we do a lot on social media. That's a combination of the folks that I mentioned, me, you know, my fiance, who also is on there and just checking messages, coming up with content. Uh, it's a, it's an all hands on deck kind of situation. <laughs> So a U.S. Senate race is really a national competition. Like you're you're competing for national eyeballs or mm -hmm. spots on, you know, the major MSNBC, CNN, Fox, yeah. all of that. Joe Rogan, whoever has Joe a national Rogan. base. Hey, man, <laughs> you go where you go. Yeah. Um, if Joe Rogan called, would you say yes? I, I guess. That is the I mean, wrong yeah. answer. The answer is yes. Yes. Joe Rogan calls you for a podcast. You say yes. You yeah. show up. Well, you know what's you... funny is a uh, a guy I went to elementary school with actually is his his producer or um well I forget his nickname. Uh, I don't know. Jamie. Well, his name his real name is Jamie, but I don't know. I think he has a nickname that he calls him like Young Jamie or something like that. So anyway, well, you fun need fact. To... I know. To... Yes, Jamie, are you listening? Get me on. <laughs> <laughs> darn right yeah um, we got to get yeah. out there wherever we can right yeah well look you're in a trending red state that yeah. uh you know might not be the best place to be for the next two or four years or 20 if, maybe yeah <laughs> yeah unless the democrats get their act together with respect to jobs yeah so i don't like like I don't. So you you need you need to actually be walking into these seemingly hostile environments and and actually like state your case, which I know you're you're not scared to do because you did organize those debates with was it named Mendenhall, Josh or, Mendenhall. <laughs> yeah. So like yeah. No, I'm definitely not scared of the hostile environments, and and I agree. I mean, we need to yeah, like I said, get get aggressive, right? I mean, it's like we can't play softball here. We're losing. So you know, when I see the the Republicans, they had six forums during the summer and fall with all of their candidates and you look at how you know they organize these things it's like they had 500 people a thousand people showing up to those now mind you it was during the pandemic when you know maybe that wasn't the safest thing to be doing but they have numbers they have numbers and they're putting their message out there and we are a vacuum we're just it's a vacuum so well, yeah i mean one of my frustrations with the democratic party is they think unity comes from vacuousness right they think unity comes from vacuousness where the republicans are like out there debating freedom this is you know say what you want about republican media and conservative radio and conservative tv but i've been canceled many times by a local npr station they invite me on because they, they find me fascinating then they talk to somebody else and then they they come back and say like oh no you, you can't come on but yet when the fox affiliate invites me on i always go because they're not scared of debating the ideas and the content of freedom and how it's realized through our policy. So mm. there's a way in which the Democratic Party, liberals, and to a certain extent, even the left, is scared for actually scared about actually contesting ideas and about how well, we should govern the nation in the way that Republicans aren't. Yeah, I, I mostly agree. I mean, I will say I don't think to me, you know, what like take for a Josh, for example, Josh Mandel or a lot of what's on Fox News. I mean, it's not rooted in truth right i mean it is a vision but it's a vision rooted in manipulation of of truth in the past and all of these things and so but i completely agree with you that the only way to effectively counter that is not by continuing to just speak to our people and say what we think is better or how bad they are it's by going straight for them and calling out the bs you know right. so yeah 
I, I agree with that. No, we need to, I mean, so one of the, I have a, people are always uh, surprised that I don't like Barack Obama too much. And I'm not the hugest fan. Cause I think that after eight years, he left Democrats more confused about what it meant to be a Democrat. He was very good about getting himself elected. Not so good about like actually clarifying what the party means in terms yeah. of like people's role in governance for the rest of their lives. So if you can't win or you can't get your policies enacted, I'm going to need you to clarify the fight. And that guy was not very good at clarifying the fight in a way that was actually substantive and, and important. So like even as yeah. a progressive, if you have a hard time getting the policies passed, like your job immediately becomes clarifying the fight to mm -hmm. let the people know where it gets obstructed. Like mm -hmm. I wanna know what exactly keeps good people from running for Congress. You ran for Congress, so you know. So you, mm -hmm. could, you could, I can just ask you, what keeps good people from running for Congress? Well, one, I do think some people are just nervous about putting themselves out there. If you're a good person, right. you see what the political climate looks like and it feel it can feel like you're throwing yourself out to the wolves. Right. Uh, and that's not for everyone <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, and so and I understand that that's a pretty rational reason to not want to do it. Uh, but, yeah, there are definitely some structural things. I mean, most people I and I'll say on the in the first category, I was one of I was one of those people. I mean, I made the connection about how, you know, policy wasn't going to be enough. It all comes down to politics when I was in Washington working at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And but I'm still like, but politicians can be a little they're a little icky. Right. It's like I'm not really good at pretending to be a politician. You have to pretend. And so I don't know if I can be one of those people. And it really took seeing people who felt very authentic, who, you know, women, women of color, black women putting themselves out there grassroots funded winning that showed me is like, oh, you know, maybe there's this whole other way of doing this that's possible. And and I just had to get over my own fear of potentially failing really to to go and leap and, and go for it. So, you know, I get that. Um, and then in terms of the structural things, yeah, money. I mean, people, I, I know the first one of the first people I talked to when I was considering starting to run was, well, can you raise $250,000 was just like the go-to response. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I've never raised anything more than like some fundraiser for work or Girl Scout cookies or whatever. And I was like, could I raise $250,000? So, you know, for most people, you hear that number and then, and that number is meant to throw, to be thrown out there to scare you from wanting to do it. Right. It, it's only institutional people that hear that and they're like, oh yeah, no problem. I got that. <laughs> so, you know, that's the other thing. And, um, and then fear of failure. And this is something that was, I, I probably learned more so during my race, after my race, you know, the last race where we didn't win, where a lot of people, and I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing. I mean, you're, you know, you're coming from a different region, but, you know, feeling like somehow if you don't publicly uh, win or, you know, that, that, that this is some, it reflects something about you or your identity or that, you know, it's just like, no, <laughs> that is not the case. And, and, but I get that because that's, you know, we're, we're taught to not take risks and, you know, and society is not necessarily affirming us to be out there in power building mode. But I, if, if people take nothing else from this conversation or most, especially young people that I talk to, but really people of all ages needing to hear this is like, we have the power. We have the ability to do, to advocate for ourselves. We have the ability to organize ourselves and we need more of us who are willing to step out there. Make sure you got your things in order so that, you know, they're not able to crush you, but that, that are willing to step out there and build. You know, when I get people who ask me, it's like, oh, Morgan, like, I love everything you're saying, you're saying, I really support you. But like, 
how are we going to make sure you win? It's like by you now taking this conversation and telling every single person, you know, that is how we start to change things. Right. So recognizing that we are powerful. And I think we had been taught to question that. And now we're in this era where we need to proactively work against that and start to really build. Well, there's this notion that we can have a democratic nation without actually diffused courage. Right. And that's there's a quality of political courage. So every four years, I like watching the Iowa caucuses because I find it fascinating. You have to go out in front of everybody and kind of announce who you're going to vote for and in front of your boss and God and everyone. <laughs> um, you just kind of have to stand and, uh, and, and like and, and, and then you give speeches. So I'm like, I'm, I would like more caucuses in our life in general. Mm. And there's a fascinating mayor, I think, uh, in Jackson who for the last presidential race, he held a caucus for his vote. He was like, well, all right, well, everyone come down. Give me, uh, give me the reasons why you want me to endorse your candidate. And at the end, we'll take a caucus and then I'll endorse whichever candidate uh, leaves that form. And I found out that was a, actually a lovely way to do um, a mayoral endorsement for a presidential race. And mm. so, but it takes a quality of courage to actually go out and, uh, you know, unsecret your ballot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and in a way that Americans are taught that we don't actually we can be good democratic citizens without actually having courage. And that's just not true about too much in life. About too much in life. I was going to say, yeah, I agree. And uh, but you're right. I mean, we are we are taught to be running scared. And and that's, what, you know, some of the most inspiring things that happened to me in, in running this political journey is when I see in individuals that that flip you know, that switch flip and the courage happened and people being outspoken about, hey, they told me that I'm going to get, you know, blackballed if I host a fundraiser for you and I'm going to do it anyway. People telling me that, you know, that they know that they're going to be alienating some of their friends, but they just believe in the vision that we're talking about and they're going to post on Facebook about it. I mean, that that is everything, because if we've lost that, if we've lost the ability to speak freely about what we are and who we believe in, then we have lost what this country is supposed to be rooted in and God help us. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a little bit shocking to me, to be honest about the, uh, the lack of courage. Yeah. But it's a skill, right? So you have to figure out like we're taught like courage is something that's a skill that has to be practiced from a pretty, like I think a young age, but just in general, it, it, it has, it's something that needs to be acculturated as part of our democratic culture in our schools. And just like understanding that part of what it is to be a citizen in a democracy is having the courage to actually use your voice and articulate your vision of the whole. And, well, and, and, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, and all I was going to say is, but I, I have empathy in a way because I do think we're also, led to believe that the individual things we're going through are somehow unique. Mm -hmm. And, and then you know, when, when you were talking about, you know, the, the Obama era and like the diagnosis of, or how we define ourselves or diagnose the problem, whatever. Um, I don't know if people really understood what was going on, you know, just how systemic some of the things that <laughs> folks are facing were and the, the root of it being a lot of this concentrated power and control and wealth. And so, uh, general generally i think more people more regular people waking up to the fact that i'm not only though i'm not the only one having mental health crisis i'm not the only one that's like i'm not looking forward to the next 10 20 years of my life i'm not the only one that has somebody in my family who's been 
incarcerated. I'm not the only one with a felony on my record and can't get housed. It's like, it's everywhere. And that's also one of my goals in, in running is connecting those dots. So we realize like no stigma, no shame. We're all going through the same stuff. And now we can all boldly advocate for what we need to be okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the good things about Donald Trump being president was it was nice to have a president who had been through a, a few public bankruptcies. Be like, I'll do it again. <laughs> like, so, so you know, there, there was a way in which, no, I think, was, was having Donald nice? Trump, I think having Donald Trump as our president changed the way we talked about the national debt and what money means. Because here's a guy who has lost so much and gained so much that money must not be what we thought it was because of the fact of him wouldn't exist. So like it, it got people thinking about what money and what debt means, I think in a, in a, in a, in a fascinating way, having a president who'd been publicly bankrupted, like I've seen three times, like that's just ones I can think of, probably more, more than that. So like there were- That's there the first time I've heard that. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting no, theory. People, people clown Donald Trump. I think he called out fake news in a way that was, that was useful. Um, cause people CNN are definitely much more critical of the media now. That's yeah, the truth. Yeah, but, CNN, but, but here's the thing with all of that stuff though, but, but did he do anything to, to solve it or to advance it? No, 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 no. no, no. But, um, but yeah, so the, the nation is primed for a quality of both courage and like largeness of vision that I think we're offering if we can just get get the message out in a clear way mm -hmm. and i don't know build some sort of the, the infrastructure so one thing i did want to talk to you about is mm -hmm. the democratic party is really bad about losing candidates they just throw them away as if they didn't exist when they're really huge resources of like partially built machines that can be weaponized in a way so if i were you what i would do is like comb through all of the primary challengers for all congressional races in the state who didn't win um because the people who won won't want to talk to you they're going to talk to your 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 your, your competitor but who didn't win because they have like little mini mini infrastructures that are just kind of and they've just like democrats are really bad about throwing away losing candidates after you lost your race did anyone from the party talk to you about like you know how you could be useful in crafting no. the vision <laughs> no but you know what i was doing after we lost our last race was uh working with our volunteers to start an organization <laughs> and getting to work so we started cloma stand up we did pandemic relief we got thirty thousand masks throughout franklin county we started a ride share program to get people to the polls to vote to get to vaccine appointments and because yeah i mean one of my learnings from the last race was you know, one, I mean, I want people to see that politicians can be about more than just themselves rooted in service, but right. two, that we can actually come together and do things that people have lost a little bit of faith in each other. And we've got to restore that. And that is the, the root of a more successful politics of people believing and choosing the right type of leaders. So, um, you know, hosting forums to talk about issues. That was another you know thing that we are focused on. And yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, that infrastructure building, that's what's happening too, you know, that we're in a statewide race connecting with people all over the state. I mean, they're just, just this morning, I was online and saw, you know, a guy who just became mayor of a, a suburb of Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, and announcing that they're passing in an ordinance to support Medicare for all. It was like, cool, right? I mean, yes. so like, how do you spread these messages? Well, by having people, you know, also at the local level that are spreading and educating people about even federal policies. 
Good, 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 good. So, uh, all right. So I'm going to let you, it's about that time. I'm going to let you have the last one. What should people know about you and your struggle? <laughs> it's a joy. It's not a struggle. Uh, no, it's a joy. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan Harper running for U.S. Senate. We have a real opportunity in Ohio. And, and I think Ohio is emblematic of a lot of dynamics happening across the country to really show people that you know, moving in a more progressive direction is the only option. And it is the only way that we're going to both be a stable <laughs> country, state of the future, um, stable as people and individuals, but, you know, also being able to, to fend off like what's happening on, on the, uh, the Republican side and the far right. So let's do it. MorganHarper.org, MH for OH. We welcome people to support us. And May 3rd is our primary. So time is of the essence. Good. All right. So I'm going to also cut up a little bit of this into a force the debate montage montage. So I'm going to ask you, why should should people should the party force the debate among candidates? Should that be a campaign? And why? Yes. Why should we force the debate? Every every party needs to be hosting debates. Every demo and especially people who claim to be Democrats need to be hosting debates because that is how we get the ideas out there. That's how people see how good candidates are advocating for their ideas. And that is how fundamentally you make the case to pass legislation once in office. So yeah, we need to see that. Voters deserve to have full information and make their own decisions. So say force the debate. Force the debate. Force the debate. Good. All right. So yeah, because if we don't know people's reasons for what they stand for, we don't really know what they stand for because we're not we don't really know what they're gonna compromise on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. And take, for example, in my race, uh, Tim Ryan used to be for Medicare for all. And then he decided he's going to run for president. He's not for Medicare for all anymore. And stated reason why a couple of days ago to a local TV station is, oh, because we've got to protect these union benefits. Like I said, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. If that's your justification, that doesn't make any sense. But we need to talk about that because I have a clear, <laughs> yeah, I have a clear response for why that doesn't make any sense. Your move. What's the next response? Because And if you have none, then you need to be supporting that policy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, Nancy Pelosi got caught with this in terms of uh, in terms of individual stock trading. Like, there are good reasons. It's possible that there are good reasons why um, representatives should not be able to trade stocks individually, especially if they're meeting with the um, companies themselves in order to govern the market. There, are, there might be good reasons. But the reason she gave for it was like, well, I just want to be, we're in a free market society, so I should be able to participate. And that was ridiculous. That's a crazy reason. That's a crazy reason. Yeah. And I, and I don't think there are any good reasons. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so like, but it wasn't like her, it, and Americans are pretty savvy about this. We might not know too much about too much, but I was a kid when Pete Rose got pinched for yeah. betting on, on the league. Yeah. Cincinnati. And then like, you know, and I don't know if you know about the NFL, they can't bet on anything. They yeah. can't even bet on like amateur sports because the idea is that athletes talk with each other. So they don't want like collusion yeah. among athletes across oh, sports. Yeah. So well, let's not talk about, yeah, how like we, we love to restrict the behavior of athletes, but let ownership levels do whatever they want. So, <laughs> they can do whatever yeah. they want. Yeah. So this idea that I get to govern the market and bet on it, like it shows well, well, like a it, quality it, of ignorance. It's absurd. And, and also, okay. And when we get to the corporate, yeah, all this money thing, because, you know, I worked a, as a federal regulator, Good. you can take maybe if someone gives you, Oh, I don't know, like, Oh, Morgan, you came to this event and you get like a, a button clicker as an on, you know, like maybe you can take that button clicker, but maybe you can't. Right. Because it's like, <laughs> Oh, that seems like, you know, impropriety and you can't have any money or influence to the regulatory process. So how we got to this place where we just let 
sitting members of Congress essentially do whatever they want, you know, is crazy. And then think that they're going to be clear headed to actually do what's right when it comes to policymaking. No, we don't allow it with our regulators. We shouldn't allow it with our sitting elected officials. This is crazy. And and most regular people agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But until you get the until you actually get them to articulate their reason, you don't know how distorted it's distorted it's, it's actually and it's pretty yeah it's pretty disturbing sometimes like you, I, you don't hear like umpires say like yeah i should be able to bet on the game yeah like, 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 like well and we saw this with uh and now just today the energy or yesterday some of the energy trades that they were doing it's like oh man it's like this is corruption this is why people don't trust us okay no, no. no. <laughs> all right we well, don't have a policy problem we have a politician problem yeah, but we also have a process problem because that's how the politicians stay who they are, right? So we got to figure out, like, I'm I'm actually working on a different paper about this, about, like, where do good policies and politicians get aborted? Like, like we have, we're a rational, rational enough system to generate the quality of policies and insight that we need, but we're also a distorted enough one to to kill it <laughs> like we we kill the policies in committee quietly or in a primary that nobody's watching like it gets killed primary uh like quietly and we got to get at those mechanisms because we can't have the quality of policies we need in a democratic like polity unless we have democratic processes we need that'll actually allow those policies to be viable i don't right. think yeah well we have to have more, I mean, some people might push out, but yeah, I mean, more people that are uncorrupted who are running, winning. What does it take for people to, like us to, to run? One, courage, sure, but also resources. And yeah, you don't need the exact same level of resources as corporate funded politicians, but you need a certain level of it uh, to be able to get the message out there. And well, then yeah, it's I in that you're not about a career. I mean, that's why I self-imposed term limits too. Winning, only serving 12, 12 years, two terms. Let's like get some productivity going rebuild some trust and get out past the baton. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard multiple candidates tell me that they get, uh, they can't get people to work for them, even if they pay because the people that they're trying to work for them, like are scared of getting blacklisted. So that's, that's, uh, been, that's been less of an issue for me this cycle than last, but, um, yeah, I could see yeah. that. And like I said, yeah. I think it's actually even worse at the, the local, local. party level. So, yeah. Anyway. All right, so let's right. Uh, let's make it happen. Hey guys, if you like what Morgan has to say, go over to her website, kick in, and because you know she needs she needs money to to pay her volunteers and pay her captains and to pay for the marketing and get the ideas out there. So help uh, help out. Also, if you like what I'm doing, go ahead and go to funkyacademic.com and kick in five fifteen or fifty dollars a month because that, nice. that would help me kind of keep this going. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah. All right, all right. Take care. talk to you soon. Bye.